welcome to this month's Stinging Fly podcast with me, Sally Rooney, uh, the editor of The Stinging Fly. And uh, this month, I'm delighted to be joined by Mia Gallagher. Mia, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, Mia is the author of two acclaimed novels, Hellfire, awarded the Irish Tatler Literature Award 2007, and Beautiful Pictures of the Lost Homeland, which was long listed for the 2016 Republic of Consciousness Award. Her first short story collection, Shift, has just been published by New Island and is already garnering critical attention. Uh, the Independent described it as blazingly intelligent and brilliantly diverse. So Mia, the story that you are going to read from us today from the Stinging Fly archive is called... Ten Days Counting Slowly by Jennifer Brady. And I think that's from the summer 2008 issue of the Stinging Fly, is that right? That's right. And it's also in the fantastic anthology which has just been brought out, uh, The Stinging Fly Stories, edited by Sarah Gilmartin and Declan Mead. Thank you very much. <laughs> Great. So uh, readers can find this story in a, in a multitude of places. Um, so Jennifer Brady has had stories published in the Stinging Fly, obviously, is included in our new anthology, has had stories published in Southward, um, Incorrigibly Plural, and various other places. And she was shortlisted for the Shauna Fuelon Short Story Competition in 2003. She's also a graduate of the MPhil in creative writing. So we're going to hear the story in its entirety today. Uh, so without further ado, Mia, please, uh, please read that one for us. Thank you very much. Day one. So... This is our holiday resort, and here is the residence beach, upon which a man in speedos wrestles with a sun lounger. The legs will not unfold. He thumps belly down on it anyway, his arms disappearing into the sand. He may well be the man who chooses me later, despite the woman. Ah, and here she is, all holiday breasts and wet hair, which she now wrings out on the sole of his foot for a bit of a laugh, and what fun! He reaches behind him, a rump of fat, gathers on his left shoulder blade as he latches a claw firmly around her ankle. She shrieks, straddles his buttocks, bastes his skin with oil. There are muffled noises of approval from him, laughter from her. It's all working. It is great. She is making, as most women do, a job of making the holiday a success. And a success it will be. I am that woman. I am that woman with that man. Day two. And I assume most couples are like this. Michael, this is my side of the bedroom. This, point, point, is yours. I hear you. I hear you, he says to the remote control. He's looking for whatever channel it is on Latin TV that has the horny goodies for free. Damn thing, he says. The screen will not produce a picture. The screen will only produce options that say no signal when he presses the buttons. Or most couples are like this when the gleam of unification has gone. Michael and Claire, double income, no kids, are back to being Michael and Claire. Five years ago, I didn't shudder at the sight of his athlete's foot cream. Now I feel discomfort to the point of nausea at the open display of remedies that allude to rot of any kind. Day three, because smearing the good germs on decay doesn't work, although you dish out the relationship syrup nevertheless. Yes, hon. No, hon. It's all such a giveaway, that goo. And what about the infidelities? Not only the ones we know about, but the ones that we don't. Did he, or did he not, have sex with the teenager in the yee-haw hat in Greece while I was laid up with an infectious eyelid? Did I, or did I not, have a liaison with the safari guide in South Africa while Michael was rigid in a hotel room with an ingrown hair? And these are only the holiday detours. Okay, 
Say we wanted a baby, abandoned the thought of marriage, skipped ahead to the main issue of progeny. Would I catch this wilting bull at the perfect moment of my own fading cycle? Because maybe something happens to a man when he's past a certain age. He becomes perhaps a nicer guy, flaccid even. I myself am pushing 40 and feel the pipe and slippers draw near, the eggs running out. I sit on the balcony with a bottle of airport tequila, a shot glass for decency, and the more I drink, the more I am able to sum it up. Some couples will never end up together, and out of those, the ones who have no courage end up ending up not together slowly. Riddle me re, this could last a lifetime. The sun nods its fat head over whatever ocean I'm looking at, and wouldn't you know it, the world is rosier on the other side, just as it was rosier here when I was back home. From the bedroom, Michael shouts, I get it, it's fucking analogue. Day four. The bedroom is his. The balcony is mine and it's here where I sit and drink and watch. He sprawls on the fault line of the mattress zipper, snapping like a dog at aeroplane treats he throws in the air for the challenge. He tucked these secret eats away in a candid moment of foresight, despite the queasiness he experienced on the flight. In between munches, his mouth falls ajar. This is it. This is what the end is. Looking at someone you love and seeing someone you hate. He sucks his breath in and redirects a belch through his nose. He yawns and scratches his balls. His hand rests on his penis. The thought of taking it in my mouth. Yet, that I will do at some stage before the ten days are up. I turn my attention to the beach and what do I see? Another couple, of course, too happy to bear. Or maybe not. This time the man sits on the edge of the jetty. The woman sits behind him, her legs taut and spread in a V, her toes skyward, agonisingly graceful. This is the way a dancer sits, as if moments of repose are and should be a ballet exercise. The man might be skimming stones if the beach was of that ilk, but it's not. As it is, he imagines the leapfrog of his aim and his hand is slightly closed on a non-existent pebble, his wrist twitching rhythmically. From behind, they are a monster match of collusiveness. But up close, who knows? They may not be touching at all. Day five. Even a fight would be better than this. Then, thank God, there is one. It starts on a walk to some remote but touristy village in the baking heat where he sweats and complains of an itchy arse crack. I complain about him complaining, although I myself have an itch in a compromising spot that I do not whine about. Then we get lost. It's his fault, of course, but then he tells me it is my fault. Stupid women, you can't trust them with a map and you can't. We row over the map with such volatile and irreconcilable opinions that he jumps on a bus alone and I sit in a cafe that is playing... No woman, no cry. When I return to the apartment, the row continues. I wallop him across the head. He thumps me in the chest. And the force of it lands me on the floor, proving to the team of women in my head that all men are wankers. They are, aren't they? 
It is in this spot we finally do the deed with the relief that the argument has spared us. It spared us the pretense of genuine desire and it has proven that at least the muscle of sadomasochism can be flexed when you simply can't go through it any other way. Now we are free to get on with our books, TV, drinks, thoughts. From my balcony, I watch the sun go down. At my right foot lies the cause of the disagreement earlier, the map. There are bald patches on the streets and the coastlines are eroded where the print has rubbed off. Day six, morning. Michael is in his nut huggers, wrestling with a sun lounger. The legs will not open. He flops down on it anyway. I wring my hair out onto the sole of his foot. He reaches behind him and latches his hand around my ankle so tightly I suck in my breath with pain. Michael, just give us some oil, will you? Fuck you. I sit on him and rub the sun lotion in, dragging my nails down his back as hard as I can. Red tracks appear where the nubbles of his spine are at their highest. A barman arrives with our cocktails, winking at me as he sets them down on the little sun table. Day six. Evening. Michael sleeps in the apartment. It's a bad dose of sunstroke, we believe. I sit at the bar, rather I sit in the sickly whiff of pineapples and coconuts slashed and juiced for the cocktails that will be the excuse for my behaviour later. The barman picks up a bell beside a dish of quartered limes and rings it. Holiday makers appear from nowhere and make their way Pavlovian style towards the bar. Happy hour, he explains to me with a companionable smile, as if we are already lovers. I watch him twirl spirits in the air, gin, tequila, vodka... His talents please him. I can tell by the efficient way he eyes it all up, this crescent-shaped bar, his world. I will not know him long enough to despise all of this. When he smiles, I see that his left canine tooth, through neglect or genetic misfortune, is cornflake-coloured. No tooth or a big manky gap would be better than this. But I will never have to live with this glitch, so it is forgiven, as I order my two-for-the-price-of-one cocktails. No ice. Day six, late evening. It is over, or nearly over, with Michael. This is what I tell the barman anyway. It's the only way to remain decent if this infidelity is to happen. Unfortunately, with barman, you have to wait till their shift is over before you can nail it. Another one bites the dust, I say, just loud enough to be heard. I will ham up the drunkenness, get some sympathy, bring him in. Oh, come on, lady. He has the American twinge to his accent that non-English speakers pick up from TV. He could be from Sweden, Mexico or Israel. You seem pretty happier earlier. This is a backfire. If you knew what I put up with there and for a few seconds I am genuinely melancholic for now it makes perfect sense to me. I am turning into a whore if I do not find the courage to get out. That is all that is stopping me from getting married to someone I might actually love and having two children. He seemed okay to me. The barman's on Michael's side. This is not what I expected. No sly glint of an ally here. My blood turns nasty. Walk a mile in my shoes.
I make sure that the tone is full of self-pity, my world is a mess and I don't care anymore if I've crossed the line between flirting and drowning. My sorrows, that is. Walk a mile in theirs. Sorry? Do you ever think it might be you? I do not know what to make of this yet. I feel a grudging admiration for whatever woman he loves. Listen, amigo, stick to what you know, I say, pointing at my glass. He twirls the bottles in the air. One of them falls with a smash to the ground. I've made him nervous then. I've spoiled his little show. Good. There's a cheer from the customers now. See him stoop to clear up the spillage. I lean over the bar to watch. He looks up at me. He's no longer smiling. Still day six. Last orders. I tell the by now unfriendly barman why I will not have sex with him. It's not because of your tooth. It's because my tooth is yellow. I smile over the salted rim of the margarita glass. He shakes his head in disbelief. I'm not looking for sex. Not from you anyway. He says this under his breath, but I hear it. Of course you are. Don't all barmen work in these package joints for sex? Has to be the only perk of this job. I drain the glass. I am an arsehole and I don't care anymore who knows about it. That's rough, lady. He pours alcohol into a metal cocktail shaker, shakes and pushes a fresh cocktail towards me. On the house, he tells me. I've had four cocktails by now, two pina coladas, two margaritas and now this, another one. A fifth is too much, but fuck it. I must sustain inebriation to justify my actions. I gulp the drink down, crunching the ice cubes on my teeth without flinching. Day six, even later. And I would like to say that he had the integrity, or that I did. But we are human after all, and I climbed the stairs with an aching vagina, actually stinging with new wounds, torn, as is the way when you're not ready or not really interested. That's two rips in the last two days. The TV is still on when I walk into the apartment and judging from the romping on it, the unsavoury channel has been located at last. But he sleeps. And like most men, he sleeps like a child. There's something I cannot resist about a sleeping man and I touch his face and kiss his forehead and whisper so many sorries that I am... Beheaded with grief and consider the balcony, but it's only two floors up, no good. Instead, I stand on it and confront the stars and the moon, really look at them. And the barman's words come back at me. Ever think it could be you? There's a warm breeze out, certainly no need for a cardigan yet. A shiver moves through my body and washes up in my teeth with an unexpected chatter. I pull the doors shut and go to bed, finding comfort in the triangle-shaped space around Michael's bulk. Day six, no. Day seven. Three or four in the morning, every muscle, every joint aches. I'm aware that Michael is not beside me. Is it over then? Has he already gone? I lever myself out of the bed, fall, pick myself up and feel my way in the dark, down the split-level floor on my hands and knees until I reach what I think is the sofa and instead feel Michael on the sofa. I pat my hand gently on what must be his jaw or chin because I can feel his stubble and a stab of regret nags me. 
as if I will only ever feel this in my dreams from now on. Are you okay? I say. Oh, not me, you. What? You stink. Just when I'm thinking, yeah, I deserve that comment, I realise he means it, literally. The stench of my own wind smacks me in the nose. It fills the apartment. My stomach is leaden, as if I'd swallowed a sack of mauled copper coins. I heave myself back to bed and lie on it, breathing carefully through my nose. The mosquito net smells too much like washing powder. The perfume of it is hideous. I can hear it too, the mosquito. Is it in the net then? The small of my back feels like there is a plank of wood jammed in it and it is splitting in two. I pull myself up from the bed, my buttocks ache. I'm going to throw up. No, the other. What's it going to be? Both. I swap from toilet to sink to toilet, knickers and limbo around my knees. I'll go back through my mind, rewinding details of every morsel that I've eaten to see what did it. My throat clicks as I remember the cocktails, the ice cubes slightly smelly as they were crunched up in my mouth. I'd even thanked that barman. Any time, he had smiled. And it occurs to me I thanked him for the sex too, just like that. Any time. Day eight. I sleep all day, on and off. Another night passes. I am like a slab in the bed. Day nine. I feel good again, and strangely not even hungry. Michael is already up, he looks shattered. I remember that he mustn't have slept much in the past few days. I put my hand on his arm and rub the hairs there, thinking at the same time, this is the arm I know, the arm I'm used to. Thank God for this arm. Listen, I say, I know. He cuts me short. We keep avoiding it. Day 10. We are wishing the beach goodbye before the coach picks us up for the airport. And already when I turn my head to the apartment block, I can see the cleaners on the balcony making the place ready for the next couple who will watch TV, fight, pummel each other to the brink of rape, drink and laugh too, because we enjoyed it now that we're leaving, or at least that's what we'll tell ourselves when we get back home. But before we start revising it, we must have this moment of solitude to ourselves and I don't want to see any part of Michael's face, not even his profile, in case I recognise the agonies that might be inching their way towards the thin line of his mouth. So I sit behind him with my legs stretched out in a V so I can embrace him clinically. Silence. His hand is slightly closed on a non-existent pebble. His wrist twitches now and again. And now his hand moves sideways and rests on my skin. What is he thinking of? The son he could have? The one-bed apartment he will purchase in the commuter belt if we break up and need to sell the house? Nothing? I tilt my face downwards into the small space of air between his back, my chest, and try to feel it what it is between us, if there's anything. And there is something all right, but it is muffled, sort of stagnant, something not good, not bad, just banked and dry. Something you imagine could only exist in the space between the two panes of glass on a double-glazed window. 
you'd have more trouble crossing that space than the sea before us, which is a desolation already too big to contemplate. But it's gone for now. Whatever the moment of courage was the day before, nothing's been said yet. And if you put a spin on it, well, courage might mean the other. Staying together. And there's still a chance that we can make it. Yes? There is still the possibility that we have made it. Again. Thank you so much. And um, that was, I think, very beautifully read. Um, actually, I obviously had, had read the story before today and um, you brought a really a new dimension to it for me. So thank you very much. Oh, um, that's interesting. What kind of dimension did that bring? I guess reading it, I had it sort of, I had read it in a kind of fl- flatter tone or a slightly, um, yeah, kind of a less... Um, I was feeling the drama more. I was feeling the dramatic turn of, mm. of the moments in the story more as mm. you read it. Um, mm. And also I think the language um, is is very different to hear it aloud. Um, so my first question on, on this show is always, um, why was this the story that you chose? Oh, uh, I mean, I, I just, I think it's so honest. You know, like I've had, you know, I'm in a long-term relationship. Um, you know, I'm. I met my now husband at the end of 1990. So we were we lived together for ten years. Well, he also he lived um, in England for a couple of years as well, and then we got married at the end of 2000. So you know, we've I've been like over half my life with the same person, and there is a kind of negotiation that happens with relationships. Um, and I I know I know the author Jennifer is married as well so I mean I don't know I don't know if this is autobiographical but there was something about that work that has to be done in a relationship and those times I mean for me it just nailed you know like that the 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 sort of the, the ebbs and flows of a total relationship not just these 10 days it could have been like 10 years or it could have been 30 years of a relationship all summed up in a holiday. Like the pointless fight that you have. Like I remember in 2007, we went on holiday to Malta together and um, it was, it was, Sean's mother had died a couple of years before and he'd, it would really affected him and he'd been really sad and I was very stressed and I'd had a bit of a tough year in 2007 and we ended up having this stupid argument. We were driving and I just... We were, we were shouting at each other and then I rolled down the window and I just screamed out at Malta. My husband is a, you know, and just imagine the word you can't say on radio and like at the top of my voice. And then it was that point, I think we were both going, OK, we need to just, you know, take stock here. And there is something I think unbearably brave about this story. Uh, like brave is an overused word. You know, people are always being told, oh, you're very brave in doing this. But they've, they, it was, it's very intimate. So it was the, the, the reality, the conviction of the, I really related to it. I thought, oh yeah, this is a long-term relationship. This is somebody who understands people and what they do together. The other thing I loved was the visceral quality of it. Um, you know, <laughs> like it's often like there's this myth women write a certain way men write a certain way men are more visceral women are are more emotional 
And this put paid, like this was came out, what, 2003 or something. So it's like, you know, good, good long time ago. But it's incredibly, it's incredibly visceral. You know, it's sweaty, it's oozing. The bodies of the characters, of the main characters, they're, they're failing, they're flawed, they're human, they've got cracks, they've got orifices, you know. And there's something very un... It's really intimate and at the same time it's not shocking for the sake of it and that and I really liked that it's just it's just human and it's like the animal side of us you know like we are these animals we sweat and we ooze and I think um, Jen Brady just did that brilliantly. That's interesting because I when reading it I was thinking about you know very very conventional and traditional sort of notions of art as involving a search for beauty and that this story is much more about confronting ugliness and disgust. I mean, the repulsion that the narrator feels for her partner, um, it's like a, it feels like a sickness. And then obviously later in the story, there is a very visceral depiction of actual sickness. Um, so how to understand that, how to understand that artistic practice that's about finding the ugliness and confronting the mm. disgust rather than trying to find, you know, beauty or, mm. yeah. But I find that very beautiful. I mean, because it's honest. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, like, I I think, I don't know, like, I'm, I think it's something to do with the things. I remember when I started writing properly, I mean, um, and even early stuff that I felt kind of was going somewhere. It was the stuff that I was most uncomfortable with, you know. Um, I fe- And I felt like once I started, I mean, I was very young when I wrote the first story that I thought was fairly decent. And it was stuff like shame and guilt that I was very uncomfortable, actually, things I'd been uncomfortable feeling. And then exploring them, I felt like, ah, oh, OK, I think maybe this is what I need to do in my practice. And I think... Um, it's, you know, Jung talks about the shadow. So it's like we all have a mask and a persona of of how we present to the world. And then we have the shadow, the things that we really, that are us, but we we we, we never believe or we, we really not like to think that we are. You know, so somebody like, often people say, oh, you're so sunny, but I can be, I can feel depressed and I can feel very low and I can feel very hard on myself. So I, I, I'm, I'm very, I'm interested in the shadow and when I see it in somebody's work, like, and I think that's it. And it's actually, she, she, she does it also structurally because she, she has the persona, which is those two amazing images. That was the other thing. Structurally, I thought it was a beautiful piece. Um, where she has these two images of the couples where she's almost like looking at them and and it's very mysterious and I don't know whether she's actually seeing herself or whether she's seeing another couple reflecting the same um, behaviour as her and, and her partner. And like... That they're like that's like the persona so it's like that mysterious thing where you look at people or you look at somebody else and you think they're great you know and they're brilliant and you know because you're seeing the persona and then you know then the flip side of that is the shadow the thing that they're not presenting to the world so and I so I think maybe artistic practice that goes into that you know there's no right or wrong way to make work but I am very interested in in things that explore maybe that reveal shaded parts of my own psyche as a reader I like to to feel oh crikey you know I'm not the only person who called my husband terrible names on a holiday you know like I'm not the only weirdo here and I guess um from that perspective it's like it is it is 
um, still about a search for beauty, but it's finding beauty, not in a conventional way, but in, in radical honesty, that what's beautiful about the story is actually how radically confrontational it is of truths that we keep, you know, usually keep hidden, um, not only from one another, but even from ourselves. Yeah, but I mean, that's going into vulnerability, isn't it? And I remember a, ver- a very good friend of mine, and she she's a very dynamic person, and we worked together in the early 90s, and we were going out for, for, for drinks or something, or going out in the pool or something like that, anyway. And she was, she started stressing about something, about what she was going to wear, and I suddenly saw this side of her I hadn't seen before. I'd always thought like I was a bit delayed uh, maturity. So I kind of thought she was really grown up and I was just a kid. And then when I saw her stressing about putting on this top and it looked incredible on her and, you know, but I just saw this vulnerable side. And I think at that point was when I really, you know, the way, I mean, you know this because of the material you write, but you fall in love with friends. And I fell in love with her at that moment because her vulnerability was was actually very beautiful. Now, it's much easier to say that than to in the moment when I'm feeling vulnerable or shaky or not my best. I don't, I don't usually feel very beautiful. So it's, it's much easier to see it in somebody else. But I think there, I think, I think it's almost like trusting that the honesty will have a charge and that will create something that's, that's beautiful to experience, even though it mightn't be what you expect. Um, I'm just thinking like I have a, I have a, a guilty pleasure, which is watching America's Next Top Model. Oh. And, uh, <laughs> and Tyra Banks would often talk about ugly pretty. So it's like, um, where somebody is just, they're so unique and they're so different, but they're, they, they, they really know how to own that when they're in front of a, in front of a camera. And it's not what, not a conventional kind of prettiness or a conventional type of beauty, but it's, but it's so real and it's so present that it becomes a kind of savage beauty. And I think that the, 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 for me, one of the adjectives with this story is there's a savage beauty. I mean, it's just, mm. It's the it's that sort of radical, wild, confrontational quality. Um, and speaking of the uh, the way that this story subverts our expectations, another thing that I experienced while reading it was that it was subverting my expectation or my sort of learned desire as a reader for the kind of epiphany, for the for the moment of realization or the sense that ah, everything has changed now because of this story and they're not going to follow on the same track that they are before because the the ending then is actually quite radical in the sense that it says maybe things will go on exactly the way that they were going to go on before. And this story is not a story of... um, you know, a huge shift or a revolution in our personal lives. It's a kind of, um, it's a small portrait. It's a, an intimate glimpse of something, but it's not necessarily a portrait of change. Um, and that's in its own way, such an interesting and unexpected, I think, thing to do with a short story. Yeah. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't formally feel I know enough to sort of talk about like because I didn't study English literature um, so I, I kind of feel yeah maybe I mean for me that's what I loved was that it was like La Ronde they they come back and but that's to me human experience like we like we rarely have epiphanies actually as human beings <laughs> I certainly don't yeah. or if I have an epiphany you know it's sort of like it, it just it can disappear it can be dissolved very quickly and I think there's again coming back to honesty, like the the honesty of you you muddle through, you know, an awful lot of life is muddling through. 
you know, things that should be like, um, was it Auden's po- poem, you know, like to, to stop everything once somebody has died, you know, stop all the bells and all that. Like that doesn't happen, you know, like people important to you die and then your world doesn't change. You just keep muddling along or um, I might have, uh, you know, or even if I translate that into writing, I might write something and I might think I'm doing something really gift and I've broken through and then I reread it the next day and I'd be like, it it wasn't as great as I thought it was or wasn't as radical as I thought it was. But uh, yeah, but I do feel like that's with this whole anthology, I feel there's much more of a a sense, a kind of nuanced, wry, ironic sense of of that, you know, of life, that, that like, life goes on. Like, you know, this woman doesn't leave her husband. But even if she had, like, or her partner, like, what would have happened? She'd have ended up in a similar relationship with somebody else. So there's a real wisdom in it, you know, which is, I really loved. Yeah. And, I mean, also that our ability to incorporate epiphanies into our actual life is very limited. So even if we have them, the ability to actually act on them and yeah. have them change our lives in some way is so restricted. It's it's yeah. almost probably not going to happen. So you can have a huge realisation, but yeah. more or less, usually afterwards, your life will just continue yeah. the way that it was. And, the, and, the, that, and that this story is willing to dramatise that in all its kind of frustrating reality that there is no sort of escape valve there is no realisation that's going to um, resolve the tension that sort of animates this story Yeah, like she says you know, the sun's setting and just the way it was it looked rosier when I was back home it looked rosier over here it it still looks rosier on the other side but at the same time you know, it's very easy with even as we're talking about this something it's very easy with even the material or the ideas or whatever is driving this story it would have been easy to make it a bit hackneyed and a bit sort of like meh and it's not it's not at all you know and I'm thinking now like you know this isn't drab this isn't banal as I mean they're really banal things happen you know you should get food poisoning or diarrhea or whatever and you can't get more banal than that but at the same time it's um it's very exciting. And as I was reading it, I read it a few times. And I think the last time I was reading it, I started becoming aware of tense. So on a craft level, what she's doing with tense. So she's collapsing and compressing time the whole time. So we're seeing day, t- day six on day one. We're seeing our day four on day one. We're seeing day four on day six. And she's also like that wonderful sequence on day six where she's this awful, awful sex with the with the with the poor barman, who I actually had a real sneaking sympathy for the more I read him. But 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 it's all knowing. It's it, her point of view is above. In the same way she's looking down at herself with her legs in that beautiful V. She's also going, this is going to happen. So I've, I felt I, like I found it, the first time I read it, I was just like flip, flip, flip. Second time I read it, I was reading it more analytically. But at a certain point, I just stopped reading it analytically and I was flipping forward, even though I knew what was going to happen. It, I still found it very exciting to read. And I love that with a piece of work that can be revisited over and over again. And there's something about the delicacy and the precision with which she uses tense. Um, she keeps telling us, "Yeah, no, this is going to happen later." And from the mo- and also, on, it was only on the second reading that I got that little seed of the barman winking at her when he sets down the tray. Hadn't got that the first time, and the, I remember reading the bit about the, the ice crunching and going something about this, it's jumping out. So her ability to find a very precise image and moment 
seeded in, but also her ability to squash time, extend time, play with point of view so that we're in very much in the moment, in this woman's body, really, and our mind really feeling it. But we're also looking at the consequences. Is this because she's done it before? I was wondering, probably, you know, the safari guide in South Africa. But um, but I think that kind of elevates it from being, say, like a drab kitchen sink, depressing kind of loop, if you know what mm-hmm. I mean. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And and something that I'm interested to ask about, because obviously you have just published your first collection of short stories. So you must have spent quite a long time while writing it. And now that it's come out, speaking about it, thinking about short story form and sort of thinking about short stories, not necessarily coming to any conclusions, but at least <laughs> turning them, turning it over in your mind. So I'm interested in how this story fits into what you've been thinking about in your own work and and talking about um, with regards to your, your, your book shift. Um, what, I mean, what have you, um, what is your approach to the short story and how does the story fit into that, if at all? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, this is a story I'd have loved to have written, basically. You know, I just like, oh, this is so good. It's so brilliant. And what I, I love being inspired by stories where I'd have loved to have written them, but I love them so much I'm not even jealous of the writer. You know, it's just such a nice feeling uh, where I'm purely in that reading pleasure. Well, um, I guess what I learned was, I mean, I've been writing, my first short story that was professionally published was published in 1990. So I've been writing kind of short, and I had a few published before that. So I've been writing short stories for a long time, but I haven't been writing a lot of them. And I do them kind of in bursts. When I was putting shift together, the real thing I was thinking about was, okay, there were internal issues in in some of the stories that had been published before were fine and I didn't want to do very much to them. And some of them I felt needed more work and they needed more more massaging. But there was also the thing of how did they all fit together? Like, what, what was this collection saying as a collection? Um, and I guess, I guess one of the main things was, I suppose there were two things. One was point of view. So they're like within shift, the point of view shifts all the time, first to third, to male, to female, to second person. Um, And that was a conscious decision, basically to have a bit of variation. Like, I don't know how you feel, but I mean, I'm always a bit afraid putting something out into the world, you know, that I'd be rumbled or, you know, I'd be suddenly accused of being fraudulent or something. So I'm always kind of anxious that... um, like things that I see as a problem, you know, that I, that I get to address as many problems as possible before the work goes out. Um, so one of the things I felt was that I wanted a sense of variation. And just because I'm a bit like that anyway, I like I like when I'm I, I'm a bit of a sh- I don't have a short attention span, but I like being pulled in different directions. And I like you know, and I, that's another thing I loved with this story, that there's so many moods and different directions and rhythms and paces. Um, so the main thing was point of view. With Shift, the, the the stories that I did the most work on are that I, I were generally first person female and the ones with, and there's one first person male as well that I needed to do work on. But that originally had been first person choral female. And the ones that I did the least work on were third person male. And I thought that was really interesting. So going back to Jung and the idea of the animus, which is like the masculine projection of my, I'm a woman I'm, and I'm 
fairly cis-identified, I'm a bit gender fluid, but fairly cis-identified woman. So then my animus is is all is also kind of like with my shadow, this masculine side. So my animus had obviously stayed fairly constant over mm-hmm. the last 30 <laughs> years. But but my my ego, my my main as in not not the ego like that thinks I'm great, but my my main identification with self had obviously changed. That there was one story in particular that I was like, oh God, I can't stand over that. I really need to work on this because what I was doing, I I wasn't that interested. So I wasn't really thinking about the short story form in an abstract way. I was really trying to figure out what the stories were about. And like, I I go back to the same territory, you know, I think a lot of writers do. So there's probably only about four or five stories that I really am interested in exploring and that I'll go back to. And I wanted to make sure that that wasn't repetitive, that if there were recurrences, that there was a sense that the reader was coming around in a spiral to maybe the same themes and motifs or even the same kind of action. But every time they came around, they might have a different sensation or they might have a different... Uh, they might pick up a different tone from it or they might come to a different sense of understanding. So it was about kind of organising this. this, And then there was one story that was really tricky and I didn't know if we'd make it in um, because I got it to a certain point of on my own. And then when I brought it to my editor, Dan Bulger in New Island, that was when he was going, oh yeah, no, really lo- love the language. I was like, yeah, the language is fine. But, and he said, yeah, I don't know what's happening. And I was going, I don't know what's <laughs> happening. So a lot of the time, I don't mm. know what I'm doing. But I like that. Like, I like throwing myself into work and really, and even with nonfiction, I'm struggling with an article at the moment that I'm trying to write. I kind of like throwing myself in there and then trying to navigate my way out. So I'm not somebody who likes, I'll, I'll, I'll give myself like a, a little cheat, like an idea of an end image or a beginning image or something. But um, but I really like just sort of um, not struggling, but well, yeah. But discovering, getting lost. I love getting lost, even though I hate getting lost because I wish this thing was finished. Actually, it's the getting lost is where I find out what the story is about. So I suppose the main thing for me is what is this story about? And then tonally, rhythmically, how does it feel? So I I guess I think maybe musically and. Uh, dramaturgically about writing uh, more so than what does it look like on the page if that makes sense I think it does and it's interesting that um, that you say getting lost is such a an integral part of the writing process and I, I completely agree and um, and obviously one of the key scenes in the story we've just read is where the, the characters do get lost and it, yeah. it instigates this huge fight I think often I find myself dramatising in my work, um, parts of what are actually the, the writing process, even if I'm not aware of it while I'm doing it, that actually what I'm writing about is in some way, it's about writing. Um, I'm moving my characters through um, through those kind of scenes. Um, well, thank you so much, so much for joining us. Oh, well, thank you. I've, I've, and I, I loved your reading of the story. I think it's a fantastic story. I'm so glad that you chose it. And thank you very much for a lovely conversation. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Sally. Um, well, th- and also thank you to all our listeners. Uh, thank you to Ian, our producer. And um, I hope that you'll be joining us again soon for another edition of the Stinging Fly podcast. Thanks so much, guys. <laughs> <laughs>